Welcome back to Plus Minus. My name is Greg. Deep into central Texas lies the city of Waco. You may recognize the name as a result of the famous standoff between the ATF and the Branch Davidians, which resulted in the deaths of 86 people. Or, on a more positive note, you may recognize the name from Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Or, you may know the city as the home of Baylor University. Baylor is largely famous for being the oldest continuously operating university in Texas, as well as its more recent success in athletics. But success hasn't always been the norm for the Baylor Bears, especially in terms of basketball, making it to the NCAA tournament only four times as a team before the start of the 1999-2000 season. So in that year, they decided to hire coach Dave Bliss, who had just led the University of New Mexico to the NCAA tournament in each of his previous four seasons. In Coach Bliss's first three years at Baylor, success wasn't easy, finishing around 500 in each season. It was at that point Bliss decided to recruit a player from his previous employer. Patrick Dennehy was a 6'9", 230-pound, 20-year-old kid who had just finished his second year at New Mexico. In that season, he averaged 11 points and 6 rebounds per game. He was entering his third year at New Mexico when Coach Bliss came calling, telling Dennehy that he would be the player that would turn the Baylor basketball program around. So Patrick agreed to play his junior year at Baylor. Coach Bliss was right. This kid could play, and his potential was limitless. Unfortunately, when Patrick Dennehy transferred, Coach Bliss handed out a death sentence. In fact, he handed out two. Now, this story is more than just a murder. It's scandal and it's one that has been wiped from history thanks to the efforts of the NCAA, boosters, and coaches alike. The summer of 2003 should have changed everything, but in the end, it didn't change much at all. See, the relationship between Baylor and Waco is a tricky one, and it's one that exists at damn near every major institution in every state in their own sick way. Baylor University employs over 3,000 cities in Waco alone and has an extensive alumni network that maintains support for the institution both financially and socially. And like I said, this is pretty normal for most large universities in every state. The university employs a lot of local workers and alumni make sure the university stays significant and in conversation. Alumni of Baylor include lawyers, politicians, business makers, you name it. Just Google notable Baylor alumni. You've got billionaires, you've got pillars of the community, you've got power and influence. What I'm saying is that their pockets run deep. And in the summer of 2003, those pockets put their money where their mouth is. But before we talk about that, let's talk about basketball. Because at the end of the day, this is a basketball story. Like I mentioned in the intro, Baylor wasn't always as good as basketball as it has been in the last decade or so. I mean, in fact, 
Like, they literally just won the NCAA tournament. But before the 2007-2008 season, it had been 19 years since the Baylor Bears basketball team made the NCAA tournament, going all the way back to the 87-88 season where they lost in the first round. In that 19-year span, Baylor's best record was 19-12, which came in the 2000-2001 season, which was Coach Bliss's second year as their head coach. But their overall record over that same 19 years was 231-301. and 301. Long story short, not great. But their lack of success on the court wasn't the only talking point of the Baylor basketball team. In the team's 20th year of existence, 1927, the team was riding the bus to Austin to play the University of Texas Longhorns. The drive wasn't particularly long, only about two hours, but it was raining pretty heavily. When the bus passed through Round Rock, Texas, it approached railroad tracks, but as the bus crossed the tracks, nobody on board was able to hear the sound of the train whistle and the ringing bell. At the last moment, the driver attempted to swerve off the tracks, but it was too late. The train struck the bus at 60 miles an hour, killing 10 players upon impact. One player, a guy named James Clyde Kelly, pushed his friend, Vire Washam, out the window of the bus just moments before the impact, saving Washam's life, but costing Kelly his own. The bodies of Kelly and a player named Robert Haley were found horrifically stretched across the cow catcher on the front of the train, with their arms locked around each other. Those killed in the crash were Jack Costella, Sam Dillow, Merle Dudley, L.R. Foster, Robert Haley, James Clyde Kelly, Willis Murray, James Walker, and William Winchester. So when Coach Bliss was hired in 1999, he was taking over a program that was known more for killing its players rather than winning. However, it seemed like Bliss was up to the challenge. See, he was known for turning programs around. In fact, he had damn near made a career out of it, generating over 400 wins while coaching at Oklahoma, SMU, and New Mexico. And Baylor was no different, and pretty quickly he changed the culture of the team, encouraging competition amongst one another, and developing game plans that suited his players' skills. Success didn't come easy, as I said before, but things were starting to look up for the Baylor basketball team, even if their record didn't reflect it. See, one of Bliss's secrets to success was his unmatched ability to raise money from donors and generate revenue. He was the perfect coach for a school that had the alumni pool that Baylor had. Heading into the 2002-2003 season, expectations were growing higher and higher for Coach Bliss's Bears. They didn't have any five-star recruits, but 12 members of their 15-man roster were returning players. And in the Big 12 Conference, you've got to have players that are ready for that level of competition. For those of you who are unaware, the Big 12 is to college basketball what the SEC is to college football. If that analogy still doesn't resonate with you, just know that the Big 12 is very difficult to succeed in as a college basketball team, and Baylor was a Big 12 team. And if Baylor wanted to succeed, they were going to need a little extra help. Enter Patrick Dennehy. 
by all accounts, Patrick had the talent and attributes that could carry a player from college to the NBA. He was one of those guys who the game just came easy to. And I know that's a bit of a cliche. You might be tired of hearing it. But Patrick was one of those guys. According to his stepfather, a guy named Brian Brabazon, Patrick didn't start playing basketball until he was 13 years old. But within weeks, he was competing against kid years older than him. And to put it one way, he wasn't losing much, if at all. But basketball wasn't the only thing that came easily to Patrick. More importantly, he was the type of guy who could be friends with anyone. He was funny, but he was also a bigger guy, you know, as a basketball player. And as a result, he took a lot of people under his wing and protected those that he loved. His sister described him as kind-hearted and would bend over backwards for people. It was pretty easy to see why Coach Bliss wanted him, but getting recruits was no easy task for the Baylor coach. But in his mind, getting a transfer like Patrick would change all of that. So Bliss told Patrick and his family that he would be put on scholarship, he would get an apartment on campus, he would get a car and his bills would be taken care of, all of that. Everything would be taken care of for Patrick. All he had to do was come to Baylor. Dennehy told his stepfather Brian, with my help, Baylor will be the Big 12 champion. And just like that, Patrick was a bear. Once he got to campus, Coach Bliss made good on his promises. He got Patrick a new Chevy Tahoe and an apartment on campus. It was a mutually beneficial relationship. Bliss got his star, and Patrick got his chance to play for a major program, a program that would catapult him onto NBA draft boards and eventually to multi-million dollar contracts. The unfortunate thing about transferring as a college athlete is that, at this time, it was mandatory for you to sit out for one season. This rule was put in place so that players couldn't just transfer if their school was playing poorly and immediately start the next day for a championship caliber team. I believe that rule has been slightly tweaked here in 2021, but I think it's still in place to some extent. I believe you only have to sit out now for one year if you transfer within the same conference. Either way, Patrick was going to have to sit out the 2002-2003 season, but he would still be allowed to practice with the team. And while practicing, Patrick made pretty quick friends with a kid named Carlton Dotson. Dotson was a first-year player in that 2002-2003 season, despite being a junior academically. Coach Bliss said that he had seen Dotson play and considered him the type of player that would come off the bench, put up a couple points here and there, but he wasn't on scholarship. Dotson was a six foot seven forward who averaged 15 minutes per game, 4.4 points, and 2.6 rebounds, shooting 38.5% in his first year at Baylor. Before he made his way to Baylor, Dotson was a high school standout from the little town of Herlock, Maryland, scoring over 1,000 points and winning his high school league's MVP award. And in the 1999 season, Dotson led the North Dorchester Eagles to their first-ever state championship. After that, he enrolled at Paris Junior College in Texas, where he played for two seasons before Coach Bliss called for him, too. Everyone knew how talented Carlton was, 
but people described him as the type of kid who wouldn't let it get to his head. If he knew he was talented, he definitely didn't show it. So when Dennehy and Dotson got to know each other at team meetings and practice, it was a quick friendship, and the two of them ended up being roommates. But shortly after the two of them moved in together, a new kid by the name of Harvey Thomas was convinced to transfer to Baylor, just like Carlton and just like Patrick. After graduating high school in 2000, Harvey Thomas was a national top 30 recruit. More impressively, he was rated the nation's number two small forward. With all that attention, Thomas initially started his college career at Georgetown, but he had some problems and ended up transferring to Northeastern Oklahoma A&M, which was a junior college. Once there, Thomas helped guide the Golden Norsemen to a 21-11 record in 2002-2003 and led the team in scoring, averaging 13.8 points per game. And just a quick side note, I looked up, I tried to find these stats, I only found that 13.8 points per game from an article written about him. I could not find in any archive any record that Harvey Thomas played at this college. I'm not saying he didn't, but at the same time, like I went to their archived yearbooks. He's not in he's not in the yearbooks from this year. At one point, whoever scanned in their yearbooks scanned them in upside down, so I literally had to flip my laptop upside down, tried to find it, couldn't find it. But just know Harvey Thomas, good player. So good, in fact, a couple of his coaches thought Thomas had more potential than Patrick. And because of their similarities, when Harvey was flown down to Waco in May of 2003, Coach Bliss had Patrick pick him up from the airport. Denny, he was told to show Thomas around, give him an idea of what life was like at Baylor, and hype him up on the team's potential. Unfortunately for Harvey, his apartment on campus wasn't ready when he got there, but Patrick and him hit it off so well, Patrick said Thomas could crash at his place. All in all, it looked like another friendship was forming. Once the one-year sit-out period was up for Dennehy and Thomas, Baylor was going to take the Big 12 by storm. However, the smooth sea of friendship would quickly be turned choppy, when a guy by the name of Larry Johnson took a Greyhound bus into Waco. See, Larry Johnson was the cousin of Harvey Thomas, and after a couple of days in Waco, Thomas was feeling pretty excited about his new living situation. So excited, in fact, he felt Larry Johnson had to come see it. And just like that, 15 minutes, time flies. I don't have a seltzer today because it is 10 in the morning and I'm not that much of a degenerate but I will do a, uh, a crisp water bottle opening you know drink water if you're not if you're not already this is your sign go get a glass of water just gonna quick say thank you to anybody who's left a review on iTunes or messaged me on Instagram means the world you can always reach out talk to me at a plus minus pod on instagram dm me whatever but uh thanks really appreciate anybody who's listening any attention this is getting i've had some people say they want me to do uh like an oj simpson episode which trust me i will Uh, i've also heard like larry nasser 
and this one so this specific baylor one has been a ton of fun just because of how how crazy it all is uh but if you have any ideas for future episodes that's always welcome too in the meantime let's get back to the story Coaches would describe Johnson's presence as uh, interesting, to say the least. Harvey wouldn't go anywhere without Johnson, but it wasn't like Johnson was a member of the team or even enrolled at Baylor. He was just Thomas's cousin. Or was he? As the weeks went on, strange occurrences began to take place in the apartment. Occurrences we may never have the full answers to but we do have some details. May was turning into June, and Patrick Dennehy was beginning to tell his friends that he was unsure about these guys, Harvey Thomas and Larry Johnson, but he wouldn't give any more details than that. His friends told him that he should go to Coach Bliss with this information, and Patrick did. Now, this is the first of many contradictions made by Bliss. Initially, Bliss said that he had never had such conversations with Patrick, despite other coaches, other coaches witnessing these conversations. Eventually, he would tell friends that him and Dotson were being threatened and feared for their lives. When his friends would push back and ask questions like, who's threatening you, or what's really going on, Patrick would deflect and tell them that if they knew what was going on, they would be in danger too. And without hesitation, both Dotson and Patrick purchased pistols and an assault rifle for protection, which quickly transitioned into the two of them visiting a farm to go practice shooting. This farm was owned by a man named Darren Cox, and this guy Cox gives way more information than any other source I could find. And it actually took me forever to find him as a source, but either way, here we go. Cox told investigators that he knew the two of them because he had sold them a few pit bull puppies in April of 2003, just a couple months earlier. During that transaction, Dotson was about $460 short, but Cox let him take the dog anyway, making an arrangement for Carlton to pay the money on a later date. That later date was set to be Friday, June 6, 2003. But the day came and went without Cox ever receiving money or any sort of communication from Dodson. The next morning, June 7th, Cox received a phone call from Carlton. On the phone, Dodson told Cox, quote, I've got some stuff I need to talk to you about. Later that day, Dodson and Dennehy arrived at Cox's farm, brandishing a 25 caliber pistol and a 22 caliber rifle with a scope. Cox was understandably a little startled, but the guns weren't for him. Dotson told Cox that the money he'd promised to deliver had been stolen. He blamed the theft on, quote, friends who'd been hanging out in their apartment. One of them, Dotson said, waved a gun in his face when Dotson accused him of stealing the money. Then, a couple of days later, on June 9th, Carlton and Patrick returned to the farm, still no money, but guns still in hand. This time, they were going to take some target practice. At one point, Cox noticed some damage to Dennehy's Chevy Tahoe, and when he asked what happened, 
Dennehy told him it had been broken into. Cox asked if he knew who did it, and Dennehy replied, Harvey. At that point, Cox had heard enough. Between the theft, threats against their lives, and now the car being broken into, he urged Dotson and Dennehy to go to the police. But Dennehy couldn't go to the police, he said. He had an outstanding warrant for failing to appear in court for a seatbelt violation. Cox told the boys that, quote, Instead of spending all that money on dogs and guns, you should pay that ticket. Cox then pushed Dennehy to confide in a coach at the very least. Dennehy agreed and went to assistant coach Rodney Belcher. After Dennehy explained the situation with Harvey to Belcher, Belcher went to confront Thomas about the accusations. Once he got to Thomas's new apartment, Harvey denied all accusations. But while Harvey was denying accusations, even more were being made against him. Underscoring the fear Dodson and Dennehy felt towards Harvey, their third roommate, a guy named Chris Turk, explained that he had never seen any guns in the apartment before Harvey arrived. And around the same time Dodson and Dennehy started taking target practice, they told Turk that under no circumstances should he allow Harvey into their apartment, nor should he allow anyone in if they weren't home. Turk would then describe a night where he was home alone and there was a knock at the door. He double-checked to make sure both deadbolts were locked and looked through the peephole. On the other side of the door stood a man that fit Harvey's description, but his face wasn't visible. What was visible was a pistol being waved back and forth across the peephole in a threatening motion. Then, on Saturday, June 14th, 2003, Dennehy called up his good friend, a guy named Daniel Acopney, and told Daniel that he would be coming to visit his house and he would be bringing Carlton. Acopney said, hey, great idea. The three of them could hang out for his upcoming birthday and he would, they would all return, all three of them, to Waco and they would go to the police together. On this phone call, Dennehy had Dotson in the room with him. Daniel said he could hear Dotson speaking, but couldn't make out what he was saying. When he did, what he did hear was Dennehy asking Carlton, quote, are we going to head down? To which he heard Dotson respond, but it was unintelligible. Dennehy returned to the phone and told Daniel, quote, yeah, yeah, we're on our way. We'll head out soon. Now, the day before this phone call, assistant coach Abar Rouse was doing his duty of making sure the players were attending their scheduled classes, but when doing his rounds, he noticed that Patrick hadn't shown up for any of his. This wasn't a huge deal, seeing as it was Friday and he might have taken an early weekend, as we all do. The next day, his phone call with Daniel took place. Dennehy's phone call with Daniel took place. Then, on Sunday, June 15th, Patrick's stepfather and mother thought it was odd that he hadn't called them for Father's Day. Again, it was odd, but there were no distinct red flags. That was until Monday. Patrick still hadn't shown up for class, and when his roommate Turk returned to their apartment after having been gone for the weekend, he noticed the dogs hadn't been fed in days. Tuesday came next. Still no Patrick. At this point, Dennehy's girlfriend, a woman named Jessica De La Rosa, contacted Carlton and asked if he'd seen Patrick. 
Dotson told Jessica in a frantic tone that he had no idea where Patrick was. He then went on to tell her that they were scared for their safety and that they had started sleeping with their doors jammed shut. And it had gotten to the point that Dotson had to flee Texas and go back to Maryland, but Patrick said he was going to stay. And Jessica wasn't the only person who reached out to Carlton. Mr. Brabazon, Patrick's stepfather, called Dotson too. And Dotson gave him the same story, except he added that he couldn't give any more details on the phone, and if he could just meet him in person, he would be able to explain everything. After hanging up with Dotson, Brabazon called Coach Dave Bliss. And while everyone else was taking it seriously, Bliss made it seem like Denny he was just, quote, around, implying that either he had seen Patrick or he had heard from someone somewhere that Patrick was with his friends. Bliss said that since Dotson and Dennehy were such good friends, he assumed that they had gone somewhere together and just not told anyone about it, despite everyone around him saying that it wasn't like Patrick to just take off. Assistant coach Abar Rouse drove to Dennehy's apartment and looked for his car, but couldn't find it. He then proceeded to knock on the neighbor's doors. Still no Patrick. Daniel was the next person to go looking for Patrick. After their plans to hang out over the weekend fell through, Daniel drove all the way to Baylor with a friend of his and made their way to Patrick's apartment. There, he spoke with the property manager who allowed him in. Patrick's roommate, Turk, wasn't home at the time, so Daniel walked through the apartment, fed the dogs, and eventually made his way to Patrick's room. When he opened the door, he saw a typical college dorm, but on the bed was an open suitcase, half-packed probably for the trip he had planned to go to Daniel's. Daniel continued his search of the apartment, but found nothing of concern and left. Before he did, however, he wrote a note for Patrick, put it on the counter, and took the dogs. By June 19th, there was still no sign of Patrick. The Brabazons, after days of talking to Dennehy's friends and De La Rosa telling them that she hadn't talked to him since June 11th, they reported him missing to the Waco Police Department. Slowly but surely, the investigation began. First, Detective Bob Fuller of the Waco Police Department began interviewing players and coaches of the Baylor basketball team. During these interviews, teammates mentioned that Dennehy, Dotson, and Thomas were all living together for some time, and at one point, money had come up missing. These same teammates would go on to say it was Thomas who had taken the money. This story was corroborated by assistant coach Rouse, who told detectives that Carlton and Patrick had come to coaches and told them that Harvey and his cousin Larry Johnson had threatened them, putting a pistol in both of their faces. These threats allegedly took place on June 6, 2003. The next day, June 7th, Patrick and Carlton purchased guns, citing their own safety as the reason. By June 9th, just three days after the threats, Patrick and Carlton had their conversation with coaches about the threats Thomas had made against them. And I know I'm throwing a lot of dates at you, and the timeline is more like a time web, because if you remember the dates I mentioned about Darren Cox and his farm, this should make sense to you. I'm just going to break it down real quick. So June 6th, 2003, Carlton was supposed to pay $460 to Cox for the Pitbull puppy, but Carlton never showed. This makes sense because allegedly, this is the same day Thomas and Johnson threatened Dennehy and Dotson, 
You can imagine Carlton looking for his money, not finding it, accusing Thomas and Johnson, then getting a pistol shoved in his face. The next day, June 7th, Carlton and Patrick purchase weapons and return to Cox's farm. There, they explain why they don't have the money and ask if they can practice shooting there. Then, June 9th, they return to Cox's farm to practice shooting. Cox notices the damage to Patrick's SUV, and he tells him that Harvey did it. Cox pleads with the kids to tell them for them to tell the cops, or at least, you know, the coaches, and Dotson and Dennehy agree. Later that day, June 9th, they speak with coaches about the threats being made against them. Coaches tell the two of them to not go to police and that the staff will handle it. And then, five days later, June 14th, Patrick is last spoken to by Daniel, and he's planning to get out of Waco. Again, I've been told my timelines can be a little bit confusing. Hopefully that cleared it up a little bit more concise. Because more, the other thing is more details will come out, but we aren't there yet. So, in the following weeks, police continue their investigation into the disappearance and the Brabazon family pleads with the public to come forward with any information about their missing son. At the same time, Coach Dave Bliss publicly said that Harvey Thomas had nothing to do with the disappearance, saying, quote, there's absolutely no way he's a suspect in this case. Actually, I'm going to retake that because he has a southern accent. <clears throat> There's absolutely no way he's a suspect in this case. Now, earlier I mentioned how Coach Dave Bliss contradicts himself an incalculable number of times. He told, he told reporters and news people that he, he was never aware of any accusations against Harvey Thomas despite other coaches saying he certainly knew, and Thomas himself saying Bliss came to him directly about the accusations. And this is a moment where I would like to tell you all what it takes to be a coach in any sport at a major school. To be a coach, you damn near have to be a sociopath. You have to lie to families about what their child is capable of so you can get more recruits, which leads to more bonuses. You have to lie to reporters about what you are and aren't aware of, so you have plausible deniability in case something does happen, and you'll still get paid. You have to lie to your players about the goals of the team, knowing the whole time the only thing that really matters to you is your paycheck. That's the thing about NCAA sports. The coaches are the ones who get paid. The player's success determines what the coach makes, but the school is the one writing those checks. So as a coach, it is always in your best interest to protect the institution paying you rather than the kids who are getting you paid. For all the sports fans who are listening, I know some people listen as a sports fan, some people as a true crime fan, some of both. Think of all the coaching scandals you've heard of. The coach initially claims that they had no idea what was going on behind closed doors before eventually the truth comes out that they knew all along and they put together some pathetic press conference where they announced their resignation and claimed they should have done better. Coaches do not put the kids first the way that they claim to. They put themselves first, you know, school second, and maybe, if you're lucky, the kids third. And I'm not trying to discourage any potential college athlete, but just know, the guy up top, he'll throw you under the bus if he has to. And shockingly, that is exactly what Coach Bliss did during this investigation. 
Remember that Patrick Dennehy was a star player who had just transferred to the Big 12 school. You know, he came from New Mexico, and now he's at Baylor. You can imagine the type of press and the pressure that that brought to the investigation. And as a result, police wanted to make sure that they got this right, especially in a community like Waco, where Baylor is so important. But tips and leads slowly started to dry up. They used helicopters to canvas areas and continued with national news coverage, but still no Patrick. Then, on June 26th, seven days after Patrick was reported missing, there was a break in his case. His Chevy Tahoe was found at a shopping mall in Virginia without any license plates. And mind you, this is seven days after he was reported missing, but 12 days since somebody last had spoken with him. Detectives from Waco were flown to Virginia Beach to inspect the SUV, searching for any leads, anything they could find. But as fast as their luck was growing, it dried up. The SUV had been wiped clean of any and all fingerprints. But that wasn't going to stop detectives. In an attempt to find the significance of the mall where the SUV had been left, they realized that it was within driving distance of Carlton Dodson's home in Maryland. So, thinking, eh, we might as well set up an interview while we're up here, they drove to the city of Seaford, Delaware, or Seaford, Delaware, which is just 20 minutes outside of Dotson's hometown of Herlock, and requested their assistance, the Seaford Police Department's assistance in interviewing Dotson. Detectives then went to Carlton's home in Herlock, where he agreed to be interviewed at the Seaford Police Station. This interview took place on June 27th, the day after Dennehy's SUV had been found in Virginia. In this interview, Dotson began telling detectives a, a crazy story, a story that detailed rampant drug use at Baylor University, and at the center of it was the staff of the men's basketball team. Specifically, he described assistant coach Abar Rouse as a, quote, general who would have his players sell cocaine for him. He went on to name a few of these players, and one of which was Harvey Thomas. But detectives weren't really buying the story. After all, this had nothing to do with Patrick by the sound of it, so detectives tried to shift the focus back to Dennehy's disappearance. When asked about Patrick's personality, Dotson said this, quote, Patrick was, Patrick is a free-spirited person. Why would he refer to him in the past tense? Police followed up by asking Dotson when the last time he saw Patrick was, at which point Dotson stopped the interview and detectives drove him back to Herlock. When police got back to Waco, they formally named Carlton Dotson a person of interest in the investigation. This announcement shocked the coaching staff and friends of Patrick alike. Dotson was Patrick's best friend on campus. Everyone had been concerned about Harvey Thomas, but never Dotson. What came as an additional shock were the statements that Dotson had made about assistant coach Abar Rouse distributing drugs through the team. So on July 2nd, 2003, a week after the interview with Dotson, detectives called Coach Bliss to set up an interview with Coach Rouse. In the interview, Detective Bob Fuller and Coach Bliss grilled Rouse without an attorney present and they asked about whether he had been encouraging the basketball team to sell drugs for him. Mind you, 
Coach Abar Rouse had been hired on June 1st, just over one month prior to this interview. And a few days after that interview took place, there was a follow-up in which detectives and Coach Bliss asked if Rouse had ever threatened Patrick or Carlton and if he would be willing to submit to a polygraph test to prove his innocence. Rouse agreed and passed on all questions, showing no signs of deception. Detective Bob Fuller would say that he knew the story was one that Dotson had made up, but wanted to clear Rouse of any wrongdoing. Bliss, on the other hand, seemed to almost relish in the idea that it was true. And if this story was once a lead, it too had dried up. All detectives had was Carlton accidentally referring to Patrick in the past tense and an SUV with no evidence. It looked like the case was going to drag on for the whole summer. But Patrick's girlfriend, Jessica De La Rosa, wasn't going to let that happen. Understanding that the NCAA worked with the FBI in certain circumstances, she took it upon herself to report her and Patrick's NCAA violations. Jessica admitted to the committee that she and Patrick had received financial compensation from Baylor University. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why would Patrick be getting paid? Surely you thought he would have been on scholarship, right? After all, that's what Coach Bliss promised him and his family. Wrong. And if the NCAA hates one thing, it's paying the players that make them billionaires. The media firestorm that followed was a unique one. In the past, there have been stories of players being paid under the table, or kids receiving free meals, TVs, tattoos, all of that, but none of them had had a missing student right in the middle of the investigation. So, at the exact same time, running concurrently, we have the investigation into Baylor for NCAA violations and the investigation into the disappearance of Patrick Dennehy. Baylor tried to get ahead of it, saying there was no evidence such events took place and that coach Dave Bliss had a spotless record. But that wasn't quite the case, especially that second point they tried to make. See, like I mentioned earlier, Dave Bliss was previously the head coach at Southern Methodist, excuse me, he was previously the head coach at Southern Methodist University in the 80s. Now, some of you may hear the words SMU in 1980s and already know where I'm going with this, but for those of you who don't, I'll try to break it down quickly. See, in the 1970s, SMU's football program wasn't great. They weren't a top school, and they struggled to get recruits, especially being in Texas. Had a lot of competition. Then, in 1975, SMU hired a coach by the name of Ron Meyer, but he wasn't so much of a coach as he was a salesman. He ended up paying tons of money to recruits to get them to come play for him at SMU. The football program started to see some success, and boosters wanted to help Meyer afford these payments. And just like that, the program kept paying kids more and more money. The NCAA found out and put them on probation a couple of times, but the boosters kept paying and the coaches let it happen, until eventually the NCAA damn near burnt the SMU football program to the ground in 1987. And while all this was going on with the football team, Dave Bliss is the head coach of their basketball team. He took notes from the football program and began paying recruits himself with the help of boosters, but everyone was so distracted by the football program, nobody ever looked into him. 
now at Baylor, he was doing the exact same thing. And don't get me wrong, paying your players for the work they do and the revenue they generate, I'm all for it. But it's guys like Dave Bliss who force students to take the fall rather than admit to rule violations that infuriate me. And while the payment scandal against Baylor began to build, so too did the case against Carlton Dotson. On July 17th, FBI Special Agent Timothy Spinagle received a phone call telling him that Dotson would like to make a statement and that he wanted an FBI agent present for that statement. In his recorded statement with the FBI, Carlton claimed that there were, quote, many, many demonic spirits after him and that they were unex- there were unexplainable events going on, events that it would eventually lead to him being, quote, taken out. He described in this interview that his family was, quote, a family of prophets and that he had been, quote, taken over by a higher power. When asked if he himself was a prophet, Dotson giggled and said, I am much more than that. After the interview, Dotson was allowed to go home. And once there, his grandmother described that Carlton would not eat and that he would constantly sweep the floor, telling his family that heaven wasn't dirty and he would walk from room to room, reading Bible verses aloud. Then, on July 21st, five weeks after anyone had last seen Patrick, Carlton Dotson again requested to speak with the FBI. In this conversation, Dotson described the events of June 14th. He said that Dennehy had asked him if he wanted to go shooting, and he said yes. The two of them left the apartment in Patrick's Tahoe and drove in the direction of Darren Cox's farm. Carlton had a 9mm pistol that Dennehy had given him, and Patrick had a 32 caliber. This time, though, they didn't go to Cox's farm. Instead, they found a small clearing nearby. Dotson said once they got out of the car, Dennehy turned to him and put the 32 in his face and pulled the trigger, but it didn't go off. As Patrick allegedly tried to reload the pistol, Carlton said aloud, Father, please forgive me, and shot Patrick in the head. At that point, he got back into the Tahoe and drove back to their apartment, changed his clothes, threw the old ones in a dumpster, and drove to Dallas, ditching the pistol in a lake along the way. Then, leaving Dallas, he headed towards Maryland. Once he got there, his uncle helped him clean the car and ditch it in Virginia. Once Dotson finished his story, the FBI agents provided him with maps so that he might identify where Dennehy's body was. And after staring at it for some time, he identified a small clearing that he believed was the correct location. Carlton Dotson was subsequently arrested and charged with Dennehy's murder, but police still needed the body. Police quickly made their way to the general area Carlton had pointed to on the map, but since Dotson couldn't be sure, it seemed as if they were just wasting their time. That was until July 25th. Patrick Dennehy's heavily decomposed body was discovered in a gravel pit just four miles away from Baylor's campus. And back on Baylor's campus, things were growing more and more serious for Coach Bliss, he set up a press conference in which he said, quote, The questions aren't, oh, sorry, he's Southern. The questions aren't about Patrick, and they aren't about Dotson. They're about me and my staff. We have followed the rules, and I believe the Board of Inquiry will again 
find a lot of the things mentioned and reported are indeed not as they have been portrayed. But in private, Coach Bliss was spinning a completely different story. Rather than just admit that he had been helping Patrick pay his tuition, he told Patrick's teammates that Dennehy was dealing drugs, and he was making so much money that he could afford to cover his $40,000 a year tuition. Bliss would tell players about how he once walked into Patrick's apartment and found stashes of drugs and money, and that surely this was how he was able to stay enrolled at Baylor. And that was just the story he told the players. In the coach's locker room, he offered a slightly different story. In one of these meetings with the coaches, Bliss told the room that if somebody there was willing to admit to helping pay Dennehy's tuition, he would, quote, buy them a Cadillac. Shit, I'd buy them four Cadillacs. He followed that up by asking the room if anyone there thought Dennehy was capable of being a drug dealer. At that point, assistant coach Abar Rouse told Bliss that they couldn't, quote, operate like that. And without skipping a beat, Bliss asked him, do you want to get fired? In the days following that meeting, Coach Abar found a copy of Coach Bliss's contract on his desk. Highlighted on the contract was the portion that explained how Bliss had the power to fire or hire anyone he saw fit. Coach Bliss was trying to send a message. Either you protect me or I'll see to it you go down with me. Coach Bliss had just lost one of his star players at the hands of another. He lost a player whose parents he told he would take care of. He looked them in the face and said that their son was special and that their son was going to get an opportunity that no other college and no other coach could offer. But the only thing on Dave Bliss's mind was his paycheck, and he was willing to do anything to protect it. So he began spinning this Patrick Dennehy was a drug dealer story to his coaches, and it seemed like most of them could be convinced. All of them except one, Abar Rouse. About it, Rouse said, quote, This was going to result in everybody being put on a witness stand, under oath, being asked questions. And once that happens, once this begins, those lies, because the trial is so far off, will be truth by the time we get to the trial. And fearing that the fabrication could derail the police investigation, and knowing that it would be his word against Bliss's, Rouse did the only thing he could think of. He went to the store and bought a $25 tape recorder and wired himself up. The first meeting Rouse recorded was July 30th, just five days after Patrick's body was found. In that meeting, Coach Bliss wrote the words reasonable doubt on a whiteboard in front of the staff. And thank God the mic didn't cut out or anything because these are direct quotes from Bliss himself. You are about to witness just how sociopathic this dude is. There's no, nobody right now that can say that we paid back that earnestly dead. Earnestly, okay? So what we have to do is create the reasonable doubt. I got like 30 years I've never talked to an NCAA guy. Okay, so, I mean, that stands for something. Yeah. And the thing about it is what the lawyers want to do is all they got to handle is 2000 for the down payment. And 
if that last part was a little hard to hear, what he said was, what we got to create here is drugs. And Abar can be heard on the recordings going along with it, saying things like, I understand and okay, but don't get it confused. Rouse was undercover. Bliss then propositioned the other coaches to see if they could convince three players, R.T. Gwynn, Ellis Kidd, and Harvey Thomas, to tell stories about Patrick and his hypothetical drug dealing. Later, in the same recording, Bliss would say, So that there is Bliss coming up with, in real time, the story that he wants to convince three of his players to tell detectives about Patrick. All of this just so he can look like he wasn't paying Pat's tuition. He is attempting to tarnish the reputation of Pat Dennehy just so he can keep his job, and Patrick can't defend himself. At one point... Abar asks, on the recording, is Harvey on board? To which Bliss replies, His plan. Harvey's on board? Fuck yeah. Fuck Harvey will throw himself out like a nigga. Okay. Fuck her a lie with the two seats here. Okay. Okay. Me um, <laughs> too, fuck. <laughs> Remember way back when I mentioned how Coach Bliss said no one had come to him about Harvey and that Harvey made no threats towards anybody, despite other coaches saying yes he did? I told you he was lying, and now Bliss is saying, oh, since we lied for him, we're going to make him lie for us. The next recording took place on July 31st, still just six days since Patrick's body was found. In their locker room this time is Ellis Kidd, one of the players Bliss wants to help him corroborate his story. Bliss tells Kid that, oh, you know, I've already got this information from a different source. I just want you to tell me it's true, too. Mind you, there is no different source. Bliss is making this up. And the recording goes, Now, that is a lie. He did, there are no witnesses saying there's wads of cash. First of all, Teddy is never going to refute what we say. Say, uh, you know, I know that the guy had, was doing some wild shit. 
Because if we can prove that Dottie and Denny were selling drugs, I think we'll be out of the woods. Uh, Underwood and all the lawyers that are for the university, because those guys are on our side. Bob Fuller thinks that he got the money from dealing books. That Bob Fuller is the investigator, and uh, Bill Underwood is the guy who is the lawyer for Baylor. Okay, he's, he's on our side, and Bob Fuller is on our side. Now, after this meeting, Abar is on recording speaking with Kid, attempting to sway him in the like in the other direction. He told Kid that in his meeting, his potential meeting with police, he would be under oath, and that if he told the lie, he might face jail time. To which Kid said he believed, "quote Coach is just doing what he's got to do." Rouse followed up and asked Kid if Harvey was willing to lie. To which Kid replied in affirmative, "Uh huh." The next recording took place on August 1st. Coach Bliss had called a meeting between Ellis Kidd and R.T. Gwynn so that they could practice their story. In the meeting, Bliss plays the role of interrogator, and he's asking both of them questions to see how well they remember their story. One question he asked was, was there any cocaine there? To which the two of them kind of stumbled over their words. Bliss then pulled out his own tape recorder and told them to practice on their own and record themselves. He encouraged them to reiterate how they believed Patrick Dennehy was dealing drugs. And just one more time, in defense of Patrick, because he is a murdered young man, nobody had ever attributed any sort of drug involvement to Patrick Dennehy. Coach Bliss is the only person who did. R.T. Gwynn would go on to tell this made-up story to Baylor's lawyers and ultimately the sheriff of McLennan County. It's believed, thank God, that he is the only one of the three who followed through. Then, finally, on August 8, 2003, Coach Dave Bliss was called into the investigative chambers on Baylor's campus. Lawyers for Baylor requested access to Bliss's bank statements, which is when, according to Bliss, he knew he was caught. And what would you guess Bliss did next? He called a press conference announcing his resignation. In it, he pulled the same act. Ugh, he pulled the same act all these pieces of shit do. As a matter of fact, I'll just play it for you. Uh, I have resigned Baylor University uh, effective immediately. Today, I was made aware of uh, some situations within our program uh, after meeting with the inquiry committee that rules were broken. And uh, I uh, intend to cooperate fully as the inquiry continues. Uh, uh, I'll do what I can to make things right. Thank you. Such a fucking piece of shit. Now, meanwhile, while all of this is going on, there is still the matter of Carlton Dotson's trial for the murder of Patrick Dennehy. Dotson required public defenders, and while they were building their defense, they had Dotson examined to determine if he was fit to stand trial. They had spoken with psychiatrists, friends, family, and who up until this point I haven't mentioned, Dotson's ex-wife. 
Now, I haven't really brought her up because she doesn't play a crazy role in the story, but in terms of context, Dotson and this woman were married for a very short period of time where she ended up leaving him because he was abusive. But all of these people testified to the rapid decline of Dotson's mental health. Like I said earlier, he was sweeping the house constantly because he thought heaven had to be clean. Uh, there was the walking around the house with the Bible. There was him telling people he knew that he had seen them in heaven and that their afterlife would be a good one. And need we not forget, he told the FBI agents that, well, he wasn't a prophet. He was much more than that. And ultimately, on October 28, 2003, Dotson was declared incompetent to stand trial by District Judge George Allen and was sent to a state mental hospital to be reevaluated after four months. According to the panel that examined him, Carlton was dribbling over himself, having auditory and visual hallucinations, experiencing general strangeness, and would burst into laughter for no apparent reason. In short, it seemed like the defense was going to have a solid chance at building a criminally insane defense. However, after four months, he was evaluated again and deemed competent this time to stand trial. In this evaluation that deemed him competent, Carlton was still diagnosed with psychotic disorder, NOS 298.9, which is defined as psychotic syndromes that do not fit the description of any of the more specific psychotic disorders. With that, he was diagnosed with personality disorder, NOS 301.9, with antisocial features, which is defined as, quote, unspecified personality disorder. Once he was deemed competent to stand trial, the prosecution was fairly certain they could get him on a murder charge. The autopsy of Patrick Dennehy showed that he was shot once in the right back side of his head with the bullet carrying out through the left front side of his forehead. And while Patrick was on the ground lying sideways, Dotson walked over, stood over him, and shot him in the skull again, this time just in front of his right ear. And that bullet carried in a straight line downward and exited just in front of his left ear on the other side of his skull. Once the prosecution compiled its evidence, it was easy to prove Dotson did it. The question was, was he mentally sane? The prosecution believed he was, the defense didn't. But people generally have a hard time buying criminally insane defenses, so Carlton's defense tried to set up a plea. 30 years. Now, I referenced Law & Order SVU last episode, and I'm going to do it again here. If I know anything from that show... It's that Ludacris' character arc is 10 out of 10 in that series. And two, most attorneys don't care to take a plea deal if they feel like they've got a very easily winnable case. So when the defense came to the prosecution requesting a plea, they played the Baylor card. See, the prosecuting attorney went to Baylor, and both Dotson's defense attorneys also went to Baylor. Couple that with the fact that one Baylor basketball player killed another, and you've got one big alumni mess. The defense told the prosecution, you know, this is making Baylor look bad. Let's just do a plea deal. Get this over with. But in Texas, 60 years is equivalent to a life sentence. So the defense wanted half of that, 
while the prosecution believed he needed somewhere a lot closer to that 60-year mark, and they rejected the offer. And just like that, the trial date was set, June 13th, 2005, almost two years exactly after the murder. But five days before the trial started, the defense came to the prosecution with another plea offer. Dotson pleads guilty in front of the court, and the judge decides the sentence. After some thinking, the prosecution accepted the agreement, and Carlton Dotson was set to appear in court to plead guilty. Now, once he arrived in the courtroom, things got weird. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but a couple of things didn't go Dotson's way. Firstly, Dotson was never placed under oath. Second, he was never questioned on if he felt he was fit to stand trial on that day. Third, he was never spoken to about the medication that he had been given. All of those questions were asked to his defense team, but never to him directly. Also, when you are pleading guilty to something, the judge is supposed to read back to you exactly what you are pleading guilty to before you do it. So if I was... If I were pleading guilty to jaywalking, I walk into the court, the judge says something along the lines of, I understand you are here to make a plea on the charges of jaywalking, right? The judge repeats it back to you. Well, Dotson's defense waived their right to that. So Dotson pled guilty and the judge accepted the plea. The next step was Carlton's sentencing and the judge requested a pre-sentencing report within the next week. For those who are unaware, a pre-sentence report gives you the chance to show the sentencing judge why a lesser sentence may be merited in your case. And in Carlton's case, it seemed like there were ample reasons why a lesser sentence may be merited, but it was going to take some time to put that together, much more than the week that the judge had allowed. And also, for reference, I heard a lawyer say something like, it can take six weeks to create a pre-sentence report for something as simple as like a fender bender. So to have only one week on a, like a guilty plea murder, it's interesting to say the least. So the defense did what they could with the time they had, and Carlton Dotson was finally sentenced. The judge could hand down a sentence anywhere from five years to 99 and he settled on 35 years. And if you're thinking to yourself, hey, this, this kind of seems like it was rushed a little bit, right? Well, wouldn't you know it, the judge was a Baylor grad too. Now, the defense was understandably ecstatic. After all, they were seeking a 30-year plea with the prosecution two years earlier, and part of Carlton's plea included him waiving his right to appeal. But within days, Carlton requested an appeal, and it was denied. In the years since, he has continued to seek an appeal, claiming he was unaware of what he was signing at the time and ineffective assistance of counsel. But part of him waiving his right to appeal was also him waiving his right to counsel. This means that Carlton can't even get an attorney appointed to him to look over his files, even just to see if he has a case. And I would now like to share a few quotes from the prosecuting attorney on this case, as well as Dotson's initial defense attorney from when he was first arrested in Maryland before extradition to Texas. Prosecutor John Seagrass said, 
I'm gonna, uh, he has like a southern accent, so I'm going to try and put one on, but not disrespectful. We didn't hear what the people's version of the truth was. It doesn't necessarily obscure the truth. You know, the truth is still in there somewhere. The risks of going to trial and have all this brought out, Lord knows what the Baylor part would have played in it. Would that have become a sideshow in the trial? Would we have lost focus on guilt, innocence, punishment? Would it have been Baylor on trial? I'm not sure. I'm not sure we could have kept it from that. And then Dodson's initial defense attorney, Grady Irvin Jr., said, People forget. Courts are designed for public viewing, so we will know that our system of justice is fair. That's what they're designed for. The public got none of that. What the public got in this case was a result that some would be happy with. Alumni, boosters, anyone associated with those programs, and people who did not want to see their beloved university or their beloved program hurt. Now, regardless of if the justice system let Carlton down, Patrick Dennehy was murdered in cold blood. That much is a fact. And those closest to him still have a hard time believing it was Carlton who did it. His roommate Turk, for example, still believes it was Harvey Thomas, citing the paranoia and the fear Patrick felt for his life. Dennehy's old friend Daniel believes Carlton may have pulled the trigger, but that there had to have been other forces influencing his decision. Harvey Thomas has maintained his innocence, claiming to have never argued with Dennehy even once. While there is no evidence Harvey or his cousin Larry had anything to do with Patrick's murder, what did turn up in the investigation was a manila envelope that had been left at a Greyhound bus station. Inside it were pictures of Baylor basketball players. And you remember how Larry Johnson came to town on a Greyhound? Well, he left on one too. Prior to Patrick's body being found, the Baylor coaching staff gave assistant coach Abar Rouse money to buy Larry a bus ticket out of Waco and told him to drop Johnson off at the bus station. It was never made clear to him why he was to do it or why they wanted him gone in such a hurry. In the end, we may never know exactly what happened in Waco that summer day. Carlton Dotson is eligible for parole December 15th, 2021 but it's more likely that he will serve out the remainder of his sentence with a release date of July 15th, 2038, 17 years exactly from the day I'm writing this script. Dave Bliss wrote a book about redemption and got multiple other coaching jobs since the scandal, never facing any criminal charges. And it didn't stop there. In a 2017 interview, Bliss doubled down on Dennehy selling drugs, despite not a single person from New Mexico's campus or Baylor's campus saying they bought drugs from him. Literally couldn't even find one witness. According to Bliss, quote, he was selling to all the white guys on campus. He was the worst. When asked by the reporter why no one had ever come out and said that, Bliss tripled down and said, quote, because they were so busy hanging me. He then went on to explain that he had to settle with Dennehy's family because of the lies he told about their son. And if it were possible to quadruple down on something, Bliss said, quote, 
it was just easier. It wasn't for a lot of money. Which sounds like a wraparound way of saying, wow, I've got no evidence, not even a single witness to support my story. I should probably just settle. He continued on to say that Dennehy's family, quote, knew he was a druggie. Coach Bliss created extravagant lies and made other people tell them, all in the name of covering up NCAA rule violations, even if it meant tarnishing the reputation of Patrick Dennehy. He was, and still is, a man motivated solely by self-preservation, corrupted by the concept of legacy and significance. But he doesn't deserve any more of my breath. Without Abar Rouse, we never would have understood the depths Bliss was willing to sink to. And while we should all be able to see the good in what he did, wouldn't you know, all of these scumbag coaches took Bliss's side. If one of my assistants would tape every one of our uh, conversations with me not knowing it, there's no way he would be on my staff. What, what I would think should have happened is Abar Rouse got up, really uh, stood up to Dave and said, there's no way we can do this. Here's the one guy who did the right thing in the situation, Baylor, and he can't get a job. The 327 Division I programs, it, it, does that strike well, you as somehow he, patently unfair? He didn't do the right thing. The right thing would have been to stand up in the meeting right. and tell the head coach, I'm not going for this. This is not going to happen. Well, except then Dave Bliss could have denied it. Uh, he had a no, tape. Well, but now, two of the most prominent voices you just heard were Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski and Syracuse coach Jim Beheim. If you're a fan of either one of those programs, that should say all you need to know about who those two guys are as people. But Rouse, he's now a teacher. He works with prisoners. In addition to being a teacher, he is also a diversity management instructor and an active member of the Affirmative Employment Program Committee. When asked about his philosophy on life, Rouse says this, volunteer for everything, but more importantly, be true to yourself. Baylor University has refused to discuss Patrick's murder and the scandal that followed. They will not talk about the 2003 program, they will not talk about the staff, they will not acknowledge any wrongdoing, and they will not apologize. Baylor watched with anticipation as Dave Bliss twisted and manipulated his players over a four-year span. If you think Carlton Dotson alone killed Patrick Dennehy, think again. <laughs>